My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Welcome to the Prison Post. It's ha- I'm happy to be back. My name is Richard Morellis. My co-host Jason Bryant is on assignment. And uh, I'm super excited about today's podcast because I have Tommy DeLuna here. He lives out here in Sacramento, originally from Sacramento. And the first time I met Tommy, we were doing legislative visits at the Capitol. And I knew we'd be meeting with a lot of uh, assembly members and senators. And when I first saw him, this guy's clean cut. He's got the nice haircut. And I saw, hey, uh, who is that? Who is that? And I thought, uh, you were a senator or something, <laughs> right? And they said, no. Um, uh, that's Tommy DeLuna. Um, he's out. He was sentenced to LWAP, a life without the possibility of parole. And um, in my mind, I had seen many lifers come home, but I had never heard of somebody sentenced to LWAP um, being free. So I was excited to meet you, and we ended up being on the same legislative team. Yeah. Uh, so welcome to the Prison Post, Tommy. Thank you, sir. It's good. Glad you to go be by here. Tom or Tommy? Tommy. All right. Yeah, so, yeah, I can tell people call me whatever you want. Just don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> All right. Definitely. So um, I want to give a little overview of um, how long you were in and and then uh, we'll get right into the conversation. So you were charged at the age of 17 for a murder robbery, convicted at 18, sentenced at 19 to life without the possibility of parole. You served a total of 25 years in the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in California. So does that make you 42 years old today? Uh, No, because I've been out for... Three years, so I'll be 45. 45, so two and a half years. So we're both 44. Yeah, we, are, we were born in 77, right? <laughs> All right, yeah. 77 kids. So, like, um, we were, I was talking with, with you a little bit earlier that I had watched this documentary, They Call Us Monsters. Yeah. Right. And then last, last week on the prison post, we had Jared Nava. He was sentenced to 162 years to life. You know him. Yeah, really good guy. Yeah. yeah. And 162 years of life at the age of 17. Uh, it may as well have been LWAP. You know, that amount of time, you pretty much have this experience that you won't go home. But yet he was commuted by the governor. He's out here. He's doing amazing. He worked for Senator Bradford. And, and I know you've worked with him. And um, so I just think about what they were saying on that documentary, though. The legislators saying that they are these little monsters, unredeemable, little Charlie Mansons. They'll come out and kill again. And so far, since I've known you, I saw you at a Kings game. Right. Was committing any crimes then? <laughs> no. And you were, you were, you were all at, you were actually working that night. Right. And then you have a second job. You work at ARC. Right. And then the other time was at the Capitol. Yeah. So, I mean, this is not somebody who seems irredeemable. I mean, I've, I've, we've had each other's phone numbers for yeah. how, how long now? Over two years? Over two years. And, um, you know, if you never tried to call me and recruit me any kind of cold or anything like that. I think they got it wrong on that one, right? <laughs> yeah, they definitely yeah. got it wrong. So sounds like you're living a productive life, man. You know, so what was, what was, um, well, what's your experience of freedom? Let's just start off there. And it's been pretty fun. I mean, obviously, you know, making up for lost times, doing all the things that I wanted to do that I didn't have a chance to do. Um, you know, I got locked up at such a young age that really I was just about listening to my parents doing what they wanted me to do and then going to school. So I never really had a chance to have that, you know, that freedom of an adulthood, you know? Right. So, um, since I've been out, you know, I've been trying to, you know, go places that I didn't experience when I was younger, probably the places we never thought we'd even go. You Give know? an example. Like, well, like just the other day went to Roots Chris and you know, you're, you've been there, right? And it's that steakhouse. It's like, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, you don't even care about steak. You just want to eat. Like you put me a, peanut butter and jelly right. on the plate and I'm good. But you know, now we're like experience that, you know, like we want to spend like experience that high level of living yeah. kind of, you know, even if we just for a little bit, you I know, love a good steak. Exactly. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a judge and a critic when that, I go to a restaurant, when I'm about a steak, well, you got to try roots, Chris. It's <laughs> really right. good. But, uh, you know, I've been to Vegas a couple of times, got to see a Raider game Oh, nice! in Vegas. I've been to Boston, got to see the Red Sox play. You're a Raider fan. I'm a Raider fan. I'm a Red oh, Sox man. fan. I'm a Laker fan. I got to see all three of them since I've been out. <laughs> oh so, man, that's yeah. awesome. As you know, obviously working at the arena, I get to see all the ga- games, all the concerts. So that's, you know, those are things that like when you're a kid, you just take it for granted, you know? Yeah. Like you go to those games when you, you know, you're invited or something, but most time you just want to ride your bike, you know, go out there on the street, ride your bike, you know, yeah. do jump off the cliffs into the river, whatever. But, you know, as an adult, you're like, man, you want to really like experience things, get some memories and, and, you know, yeah. experience that with some good people. So definitely 
been down to LA a couple of times, got to, you know, go down there for work a couple of times. It's been a blast just, you know, being able to, you know, to see people, you know, from our community really just having fun and not even feeling like, you know, putting that past behind us. So you were arrested at 17 yeah, and now you come back out at 42. So you never had your own apartment, had your own car. Did you yeah. have your own car before? I, well, I had my mom's car. Right, right. Yeah. Big difference. Big difference. Right? You know, yeah, when you have to pay your gas, your insurance, and, you, you know, car note, if that's what you have. Yeah, it's it's a big ex- experience. Uh, definitely um, a responsibility I'm, I'm happy to have, you know. Absolutely. So I know you have two jobs. Is there a third we don't know about? Actually, there is. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, my partner right. and I, we have our own business. We uh, we distribute for um, for Snyder's Chips and uh Kettle, kettle brand chips, Snyder's pretzels and stuff like that. So we, we are uh, independent uh, delivery to grocery stores. So that's kind of like, that's the, um, that's the investment part. You know, it, the rest of the jobs, that's just to do the day-to-day living, you know, have fun, make sure you can pay your bills. But, you know, the, the business is something that she and I are over long-term, we expect to be able to, you know, set up a good nest egg for us. And then, you know, when we get to a certain age, maybe even sell it and, you know, get some money out of that and travel the world or something. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty good, um, experience to have so far really. Yeah. And sometimes you uh, work the jobs to fund the business. Yeah. Until uh, you don't need to do the jobs. And yeah, exactly. Right. And congratulations. So two jobs, entrepreneur, business owner, partner, full-time college student, full-time college student as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I stay busy, man. Like I said, I'm making up for lost time. I actually want to have a plan. I want to retire when I'm like 65 because, you know, we got a late start in life. Absolutely. So I don't want to have to work till I'm 75 or even, you know, something like that. Right. Man, my grandma used to say, boy, the idle time is the devil's playground. Exactly. So uh, keep yourself busy. For sure. Definitely. But Tommy, man, being locked up at at 17, uh, murder robbery, um, is that one of the ways that someone is sentenced to LWAP here. That seems to be like the predominant way, you know, I was in for over two decades. Um, that was the predominant way. Um, I remember being in, in level fours in the very beginning and then receiving the schooling. Like sometimes you ask guys, um, you know, how long you've been down or how long you in for, how long you've been down, how much more time do you go when you go to board? And then I remember my Sally saying, you see that guy over there, that guy over there, don't ask them that. Don't ask them how long they've been down. They got LWAP and pretty much meant they're going to die in here. It's just right. a slow death. Right. And um, so what, a little bit about LWAP and then your experience at 17 receiving that sentence. Right. Yes. So LWAP basically means just obviously, you know, it's life without parole. And I mean, that's really what it is intended to mean, life without parole. Um, there was like a small provision in the Dom that everybody overlooks and you can't really find it, uh, or the title 15 that says, you know, after so many years, somebody who had an LWAP can try to get a commutation. But as you and I both know the first, you know, 20 years of our sentences, whatever, they weren't giving any dates. There was no commutation. There was no parole dates, you know, right. um, that goes back to the, to the mid nineties when that started. And it just, it, it just, you know, that was the norm for the next, you know, 20 years or so. So LWAP meant, you know, when you're going to prison, you're, you're dead, you know, it's your death sentence. Um, the, the difference between that and an actual death sentence is that, you know, um, you have a lot more luxuries on death row than you do, um, on the main line, actually, to believe, believe it or not, uh, because they, they basically, I guess they treat those on death row with a little bit more respect because I think, you know, they're all eyes are on them. You know, you have yeah. the ACLU, you have a lot of you know, lawyers that are there to, to fight for them. But when you're, you know, you got LWAP and you're just thrown into a prison and you're just like, okay, there you go. That's your life. And early on it was, there was no matter how good you were, you were not leaving a level four, you know, prison yard. So, that's right. L- you know, right. LWAP had to stay at the highest level exactly. prison and that barely changed just a couple of years ago. Right. Exactly. So um, it didn't matter, you know, how, how much of a model inmate you were a prisoner or whatever, you were just not leaving that environment. And so, you know, when you try to keep that hope and think that, Oh, maybe, maybe one day I'll get a chance to go to a level three. Like that was my parole date being able to go to a level three one day, you know, even though it was like unrealistic, but that was the only way my situation was going to change for the better. As you know, level four prisons, you know, they're typically more violent. There's more lockdowns. There's just, I mean, there's just so many things going on there that it really, um, like I said, it's really more, it's even more of a punishment, you know, over time. 
Yeah, I think that they came up with a uh, life without the possibility of parole. Like, oh, well, we don't want to give them death penalty and and kill them. So this is an act of mercy. But did you experience it as an act of mercy? No, no, it wasn't. Um, you know, like I said, you know, if you were on death row, you, you get a single cell, you get your phone brought to you, you know, you get your own little phone booth to have your contact visit in. You know, you don't have to worry about going to the yard and there being a prison riot at any given moment. It was just, you know, of course you had, you know, that death sentence hanging over you that you knew you were going to probably be put to death over the next 20 years or so. But I mean, really you walk the yard in prison and there's people that are dying every day there. So your death sentence could happen even sooner than if you were on death row or whatever. So, um, I mean, shoot, how many times have you seen somebody or heard somebody got shot and they weren't even in the altercation that was going on, you know? So, I mean, there's just any number of ways for, you know, that death sentence or even, you know, your time to just be more stressful while you're serving that LWAP sentence on a level four prison yard where, you know, it's bound to, you know, just a riot can happen at any moment. So, so you're 44 today. When you think back to the 17 year old, like almost envisioning yourself at 17, this kid, you know, just so much of the world and life ahead of you. And could you see him today and envision what was his experience? What was your experience as a 17 year old? No, receiving that sentence. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I was so young and so naive. Like, I didn't even know what it really meant. Like, do you really mean I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life? Like, is that really what we do here in California or the United States of America? I mean, that's not real, right? I'm 17 years old. Yeah. I committed the worst crime you can think of, but um, does that mean that I'm irredeemable? And I, it's like, that's what I, I had a hard time grasping at such a young age. Like, so let's say the average life expectancy is like at the time it's like say 70. So that means the next 53 years, I'm just going to sit here in this prison cell. You're not going to give me any trades because I'm not going to a board. So what do I need to give me a trade for? Right. You know, they're not going to teach me anything because they didn't offer college and I already had a high school diploma. Right. So it was, um, it was just like one of those things where like, is this, this isn't real. Like, right. This is what they do, you know, in places that don't have any, you know, um, overseers, you know, and here, you know, in, in California, we are supposed to be one of the more liberal States. And it's like, no, they don't treat, crime that way. They, they treated crime like, you know, like hardened, like that you're hardened criminals, no matter what you do, no matter what you did, you know, they were sentencing people to, you know, 25 to life for, you know, stealing a piece of pizza and things of that nature here in California. And it's like, this is just, you know, the laws definitely weren't getting better for us when I came in. Absolutely. You know, they just came up with that 10, 20 life. If you had used the gun, you know, during a crime, um, obviously they were gang, um, enhancements, like you were mentioning Jared Nava, he, um, 162 years he was facing or something like that. And he didn't kill anybody. And, yeah. and, you know, the crazy thing is, is, I mean, his, his sentence was just as bad, if not worse than LWAP, because, you know, you don't go to board for the first hundred years with that yeah. type of sentence. Yeah. So I wasn't going to live to a hundred years. I was no. going to, I was going to cash my check in a whole lot earlier than he was, you know, if, yeah, as far as him going to board. So. Yeah. It's like that just, you know, that's the draconian. That's how, that's the best way I can explain it. And, but as a kid, I didn't really understand that. I'm like, you know, there's no way they're going to do that. There's no way I'm going to die in prison. I don't, I don't really remember seeing too many people. Um, they were 80 years old walking the prison yard. Of course, you know, again, I didn't know because, you know, they have a special place for them. Yeah. You know, those guys, um, most people checked out before then, you know, I don't know how many people, you know, I heard them that took a hot shot. Um, I had, I remember in, in juvenile hall, one of my cellmates was hanging from the shower one time they saved him, thankfully. But I mean, a lot of times they don't get saved. Yeah. So, you know, people in there want to kill themselves that, you know, there's nothing to stop them. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where I was at, I saw that uh, as well. People commit suicide in the freezer in the, in the, in the chow hall. Uh, at some point they just give up hope and they just, yeah. just realize that I'm more of a burden to uh, maybe my family and. I'm just don't want to do this monotonous life anymore. Yeah. So that, that brings me to, to something that I wanted to talk to you about while you're, so now you're in and you know that you have LWAP and did you lose hope? And if not, how do you maintain hope to one day be free knowing 
Like, in other words, how do you move, move on and try to live a productive life? I know that you accomplished a lot of things in there and, and then you have families, your family coming to visit and, you know, they hope for you to be free. And yet your sentence is LWAP and 0.00000, you know, never, ever get out. And even to this day, it's far less than 1%. And how do you keep yourself hopeful while knowing that I might die in here? Um, It's interesting because you don't realize you're doing it when you do it, you just do it. You know, it's like you're breathing, you know, you don't just stop breathing just because you don't feel like it, you just don't feel like it, you know, right. you, eventually you will breathe again, no matter how, unless you actually physically try to present yourself from breathing, but try to hold your breath. You know, you're eventually going to take a breath. Right. And that's what I equated it to is like, even if I knew I was going to die, I wasn't going to die today. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to live for today. And if that means that all I do is I wake up to turn on the TV and watch prices, right. You know, that's, that's, what's going to keep me alive today. Then that's what I'm going to do. Absolutely. And I just put one day in front of the other and in one day and, you know, before I knew it, you know, um, I also have my, my appeals in, you know, I, I believed that although I was guilty, I just believed I was going to get a second chance. I'm like, my appeals in, I'm not going to lose it. You know, I'm not going to lose it. They, they, there's no way, you know, they, they screwed up when they arrested me. You know, I should have been able to talk to my mom. They instead, they coerced me into a confession stuff like that. Right. So I'm thinking like in those terms, and then I remember in 2006 or 2007, I had an attorney come visit me from the human rights watch. And she's like our, you know, our guardian angel, Elizabeth Calvin yep. met her. Yep. And, um, I'm like, you know, who's this attorney coming to see me? And she sits me down and it's just, she and I, and we're in front of a, you know, so we're in the visiting room and, and, uh, she says, you know, uh, I think your sentence was unjust and I think that it's wrong for you to be here. And one day, you know, we're going to change this law to get you out. And I thought, thank you very much. You're such a, you're such a dear, you know, <laughs> great, great, uh, hope, I guess, optimism and everything. And, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sticking with reality. This is my prison life, you know concrete jungle, right? Prison walls and razor wire. So, um, I just, you know, had that in the back of my mind, but at the same time, I knew the reality of it. You know, that's not the climate in California right now. And it took a while, but she still stayed in touch. She still wrote and she kept me up on it. She was, you know, in touch with my mother and like, you know, don't worry, Tom is going to come home and, you know, yeah. And, you know, at the time it's like, you look back and you think like, dang, she really did that. But, you know, when you're in that moment, you're like, gosh, this is not going to happen. But, hey, I'll give her I'll give her, you know, somebody to, to root for. So, you know, to fight for. So I try to do my best. And of course, you know, you know, in prison, things catch up to you. You know, eventually your number's called like, hey, we need you to do this. Hey, you need to do that. And um, so, you know, I still was messing up a little bit in there, but I was still trying to hold on to hope that like, man, this is just, you know, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. But they still know they're going to see I'm not a bad guy. Right eventually. But, um, yeah, so I just, just try to keep doing what I, you know, what I thought I could do. And that's just like live for that day and try to be the best person I could for that day. And when I had a setback, you know, I didn't want to like dig my hole any deeper. I just, you know, got up and did the same thing the next day instead of just, you know, I remember I had somebody ask me one time, like, why don't you just commit suicide? And I'm like, you know what, that's the easy way out for sure. Right but it's also the selfish way out. Exactly. And I had been selfish up to that point, you know, my life, like, you know, all through my childhood and, you know, teens and whatnot, I had been selfish. And that's where I, that's why I ended up where I was, you know, I ended up in prison because I was being selfish. It's all about me. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you mentioned the visiting room and, you know, I had visits from my mother my father, my brothers, my sister. Uh, I mean, like family would come see me. I had friends that were, that stayed my friends the entire time. It's like, if I did that to them, like, then, you know, again, I'm taking myself from them. So that's being selfish. So I'm yeah. not going to be selfish. You know, they see something in me that they continue to give me unconditional love. Maybe I should have that same unconditional love for myself. Right. So I started to feel that way. And then, um, you know, I just, it just, there just became no other option. Like I didn't want to fail them. You know, they yeah. were there for me and they didn't fail me. If I needed them to answer the phone, they answered the phone. If I need a package, they were like, you know, what do you need? You know, um, they were there for me and there was no way I could not, you know, try to keep that hope up for them. You know, if I, if I continue to, to do family what I support, did, strong, motivating, it factor. is, it is, it really is. And you know what, even for those who don't have the family, um, present, like 
they know what it's like to have that family or yeah. they know what it's like to want that family. So like they need to use that as well. Like, man, just keep that as your motivation, you yeah. know, get out, have some kids, you know, be that father that you might not have had. There's something that I wanted to bring up because you talked about being coerced into conversion. Um, I mean, confession. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember being with you at the Capitol and we're talking to different assembly members and senators and staffers and things like that. And I could see the remorse in your way of being, your spirit and your tone. I could see that I'm not here to, to play the victim or, or lie and act like, you know, there's always contributing factors into how we uh, came to think and believe the way we did to commit our crimes. And those are true. And also I made a choice. Right. And, and yet you were in there taking responsibility, being accountable and trying to effectively change laws to make the system better. Yeah. And, definitely. and yet when here's, here's, here's this strange thing going on when we're being interviewed by detectives and in the courts, like my mom always raised me and I'm sure yours did too. Tell the truth. Be honest. Right. You know, I remember in elementary school, honest Abe, right. You yeah. always told the truth, right. always tell the truth. And then you get in the County jail, just tell the truth. And we somehow have this idea that if we're honest, there'll be some leniency. Right. And yet the detectives will say, just like probably in a coercion, look, we want to get you out of here. Right. We want to get you out of here. Make it easy on yourself. Yeah, I want to make it easy, make right. it easier on yourself. Look, do you want to go home or do you ever want to get out? And so we hear things like that. And then it brings back to mind what mom told me about being honest. And I know, I know that I'm guilty and um, I don't want to die in prison. So I'll be honest. Right. And then that's effectively used so that you will die in prison. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. It's like, you don't see the hypocrisy in it. You know, they want you to be honest and truthful with them to make their job easier. So accountability is punished. Right. But they don't want you, they don't want to be honest and truthful with you, you know, but they're not punished for their actions either. So it's like, it's really in the hypocrisy in the system. I mean, that's just the beginning of it. That's just like the first experience yeah. you get, you know, but it goes on and on and on more and more that you see, unfortunately, that the system is definitely flawed. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how some sleep at night cause that's, you know, when, when you want to punish accountability and, and, uh, it's, it's manipulation, even of a teenager. Oh, absolutely. And, and, um, so what, what are your thoughts about LWAP today? So LWAP today, you know, when, um, when I was in there doing time, you, you and I know that we see the worst of the worst in there, right? Yeah. I mean, those still practicing criminality that yeah, committed to it. Right. Exactly. And not everybody's like that, but there's some, no, but there, and there is, and, and obviously, you know, we all have our breaking point to when we say that's it, that's enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. But I started to take different classes and, um, I remember thinking like, you know, at one point in time, like my crime isn't as bad as his crime, you know, like, yeah. Oh, he did the worst he did. You know, he hurt a woman or a child. And we know we don't do that. Right. I mean, and, and by all means, I understand the severity of that and that it's definitely wrong along with every other crime, every other crime I committed, it wasn't right. You know, I took a life. I took, I took the son of a mother, you know? So I know that my crime was just as heinous as the next person's. And I had, it took me a while to realize that. And so when I did that and I thought, started to realize that, look, I did the worst crime but yet I became a better person despite it. Mm-hmm. I started to realize like maybe LWAP isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Maybe the death penalty isn't necessary. You know, I have a lot of conservative values in me. Like, you know, I, I supported a lot of the um, conservative leaders that we had at one time. And um, I know obviously they're tough on crime. Mm-hmm. I think they got it wrong in that respect though, because, Absolutely. because being tough on crime is not going to solve the crime. You know, so I started to realize that like, you know what, LWAP is definitely, it's a dangerous sentence. It shouldn't be used for anybody because what you're telling somebody is no matter what you do, you're always going to be known for what you did. And that can't change. And I'm like, so am I going to just continue to punish my 44 year old self for what my 17 year old self did? Like what? That's not cool. Like that, that, that would make me just like my jailers, you know? So you have to realize that at some point they're going to get it. And if they don't get it, that's why they have life with parole sentences. You go in front of a parole board and you show out, you show the parole board. This is why I'm suitable. This is why I'm no longer a dangerous to society, a danger to society, you know? And so if you continue to pose that threat, then you will not be let out. So 
that is a good enough mechanism in place to make sure you don't let out the wrong people. You don't need life without parole. You don't need the death penalty. If you want to punish somebody for what they've done, that's understandable. But to what point do you punish them? And now you become just as bad as the criminal that you're trying to punish by, you know, state sanctioned murder is still murder. Mm -hmm. I don't care how you put it. So, you know, when you sentence a 19 year old to life without parole for a crime he committed when he was 17 and he didn't understand the severity, I mean, Truthfully, I'm, I don't minimize what I'm doing, what that. I did, but it, the reality is, and the science proves it, you don't understand the choices you're making or even while you're making the choices or the consequences of them, you know? So if you would have told me that, you know, I'm going to commit a robbery and during that commission of a robbery, I'm going to kill an innocent person. Like, oh, wait, hold on. That's not possible. Yeah, but they didn't judge your intent when right. you go to court. Exactly. They don't. They judge you by the result. And I get that. I totally get that. But now if you look back at the law, the law's changed. Mm-hmm. They don't they no longer hold felony murder rule like co-defendants and stuff this as as culpable as the individuals who actually committed right. the murder. So they're they're getting it right slowly. Thank you, Nancy Skinner. Yeah. That, right. And that didn't exactly. happen until 2019. Right? right. Exactly. Exactly. It took too long for that to happen. You still had too many people serving life without parole. And who knows what that sentence did to that individual. There was some people who took that sentence and said, I am never getting out. I'm going to be, the, I'm going to earn this sentence. I've heard people say that, you know what? You want to sentence me to 25 to life for stealing a bike. I'm going to earn that life sentence. Mm-hmm. And they did, they went in prison and they did everything they can do to victimize others, to take out that anger and to have other people feel that hopelessness that they felt. And that's why it's dangerous. That's why to say something to somebody, you're never getting out of prison, no matter what you do to change. What, what incentive do I have to change? Yeah. You know? And I'd say like you're one of the few proximate leaders out here. And when I talk about crop organization, where I work at as a director of communications, we talk about that and we unpack it as, you know, no conversation should be had about us without us. Right. We should have a voice at the table for solutions. And I think about you as someone who's now free and excelling. And, and when, when do you think the time will come for those conversations, for those sentences to end. And if you were at the table offering alternative solutions, have you thought about that? Yeah. So, you know, the time for those sentences to end is like, I mean, it's now, I mean, like we're showing you, you know, you and I life in prison, right. We're showing you that it can be done and we're just the tip of the iceberg. You know, when, when you were mentioning thousands more, like yeah, when you were mentioning before how, you know, you didn't see any lifers go home, like, yeah, that was the norm, but now more and more lifers are going home and guess what? We're not committing the same crimes anymore. If we're doing anything and we're typically, trust me, there's a lot of, a large percentage of the lifer population that is not committing more crimes, but if they do, it's usually generally around an addiction Mm -hmm. and you're not addressing the addiction. You've done everything you could to address, to make sure that you didn't go back out and commit a robbery. You did everything you did to make sure you did, you know, you could address not going back out to commit a murder, but rarely do you, you know, can you prepare for going back out into your addiction without being in that moment? You know, you, you have so much around you when you're come back out of prison after 25 years or something, it's hard to be prepared for that. So a lot of the people that you do um, see maybe, go back to jail. It's because of, you know, an addiction. I've, I've, it's rare that you see anything else. So I think that's why it's important to have this conversation now. Like we don't need 50 to life sentences. We don't need life without parole sentences. You know, if you want to give somebody a life sentence, that's understandable, but give them a realistic opportunity to earn his parole. And I guarantee you, he will not have those same issues that you have early on in his prison term, you know, 20 years down the road, even, you know, a lot of people will get it right from day one. Like I remember when I, you know, got arrested and and I, I'm sitting in that cell. I'm like, I'm never going to do this again. I knew right then and there, I was not going to commit another robbery because I, now I know the consequences, but not only that, it's like, you know, this is reality now and it hits you. So I definitely think like, that's the time, you know, the time is now to do that and, you know, just prepare yourself, um, to, uh, to, to early on now with that hope to, to be able to earn that parole date again. You right. Know? I remember back in uh, Soledad, I was there for 18 years and two months and there's this amazing um, person that worked there. Her name is Mrs. Barnes and 
she, it wasn't even her job. She wasn't like, there wasn't a, there wasn't a position for the college instructor right. or the person who ran the right. college program. She just had this idea like, oh, I can talk to the principal here. I work for him and I can set up a college program here. Yes, you can do it. Okay. So she does it. And then there's like two or three guys going and then I catch wind of it. Mm-hmm. And I was like in the first eight in 2005 of those start going to college. Right. And then um, in the next few years, there was still like 30 maybe. Right. And then you fast forward to Prop 17 when they say, we're willing to take six months. Right. Was it Prop 17? Or Prop uh, 57. Yeah, yeah. Prop, Prop 57. 57. Yeah. Okay. So Prop 57, we're willing to take six months off, three months for a GED, six months off for a, an AA, right. six months off for a bachelor's, six months off for a master's. Right. Bro, by the time I left, there's 450 people in the college program. Right. And we used to say community is the method of treatment. Community. Get people in community. Me and my buddies, sometimes we would go and find so-called find those worst of the worst. Right. Let's go out in the yard. Let's go invite them to get in a group. Let's get 12 of so-called knuckleheads mm-hmm. that are committed to their criminality. And let's see if we can get them in a small group, uh, eight to 12. Right. And do some vision building with them. And we go out and we get eight or 12. And the first two weeks is, you know, or, you know, yeah, people yeah. are leaning back right. and checking everybody oh, out. Got those walls up. Man. Yeah. All the walls, walls are up. up. Right. And then someone shares a story. And then they can relate to that story. Week four comes and then they're sharing stories. Week five comes and then there starts week six. They start getting into the curriculum. Pretty soon after that, they're They're fired up. They're They're signing up for everything. Yeah. Yeah, They're leading the class. Can I facilitate next time? Yeah. And um, that's what people need to see out here. You give someone hope and incentivize. There's other countries who don't, they don't give more than 15 years. Right. And, and, and they're even before that. Hey, if you're, if you're doing all this and meeting this criteria and taking these courses and really addressing the issues that got you here, um, there's passes on the weekend and things like that. Right. But here we just use all that. Like I mentioned at the beginning, all that fear mongering, right? All that fear mongering of they're going to come out and kill again. I mean, I'm, I know a thousand lifers that are free and thriving. And yeah. even the studies show that there's less than 2% that go back and they're all thriving out here. Nobody's out killing again. Matter of fact, they're loving their families. Right. My stepson, we had his birthday party and like, who do you want at your birthday party? And he's like, my, my auntie and, and my mom, my grandma and, um, and all of crop guys. Right. Which is pretty much five lifers. I got 112 right. years and he wants all my buddies there. Why? Cause they love them. Right. They come over and love on them. They bring them gifts, talk to them. They have those adult conversations. How you doing at school? Right. And they wrestle them a little bit and then, and then they're just fighting for him to do good. We we were so hungry for having that positive influence in our lives that we are so happy to be that for somebody else. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it's interesting. You see so many people get out after serving 20 years and their kids all over again. And then they're having kids because they just want to, they just, they just, they're just enjoying it in such a, a level that people who have been out here and have taken it for granted for so long. Like they don't realize what they, what they're missing when they don't have it. You know, we did, we realized that because we didn't have it for so long. And we wonder why people complained over the, some of the littlest things, you know, and we're like, man, I wish I'd had your problems and cancer, you know, to be out, to be where you're at, you know? So yeah, it's definitely, we, 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 we definitely see life in a different perspective now. And absolutely. Yeah. And and there's nothing different than uh, about us than anybody else. Right. And, and, and we're human beings. That's, and, and uh, that's what it comes down to. And right? if you give somebody an opportunity to come out just this morning, I was at the gas station. Um, my wife's car was low. She had to drive to Natomas, uh, you know, from Rancho is mm-hmm. where we live. It's a half hour, half hour drive. She's got like, you know, 60 miles left before it, it runs out. So right. we hit the gym after I said, I'm gonna go fill up your car real quick. I pull up, there's a, there's a guy there with a, what seems to be wife and daughter in the car. And he's like, Hey man, I don't, can you help me out with some gas? I'm trying to get my daughter to school. Um, can you help me out? And right. I, of course, you know, the prison background, some that lens kind of comes right. on, engage him real quick right. and see that there's a kid in the car and his yeah. wife. I'm like, yeah, man, you know, I'm gonna go inside and fill up your tank. Right. And, um, there's maybe the people are surprised that we would do something like that. But uh, almost every one of our brothers and sisters are coming out and doing life. I see them giving right. in extraordinary ways right. and not selfish. We've been in that, we've been in that situation, maybe not at that moment where we couldn't, you know, put gas in our tank, but we've been in that situation where we needed to rely on somebody else to yep. serve for survival, <clears throat> whether it be, you know, just like I said, sending us a package when we needed it, or, you know, just being there to answer the phone when we needed it. Like we needed to rely on somebody for our own well-being and stuff. 
you know, on like how many different occasions. Right. So when we see somebody that needs, um, something like that, like it's, it's in our nature now to be able to give back. I mean, when we go back to the, uh, hole, right. When you're in prison, first thing you do, you know, you see it's your lines come under the door, right. Everybody's shooting you the kite, you know, Hey, what's up? This is us, you know, whatever. Um, what do you need off the top? Yeah. What, what do you, you need? need? Right. Um, they, you know, you got people that are like, you don't We're even associate with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the back, you know what, what, it, what it is, is you got Northerners, Southerners, blacks, whites all day long. They're communicating with each other, you know? They're, they're helping each other out. I remember when it was store day, you know, you, everybody would roll up their tubes and sliding it through the mouse hole to make sure that you got, you know, everybody had soups on that everybody day. Had something. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for that one day, we were a community. And of course we knew once, you know, these doors open, what was going to happen? Like if, once we go to the line, you know, what's up, you know, you you might be enemies out there. It's, it's unfortunate situation, but that's the way the system is built. The system is built to built to keep us at odds with each other. The system is not meant for us to succeed. It's not meant for you and I to be out here, you know, surviving and, and striving and, and like really thriving out here, you know, like that's not how the system was meant for us. No, it's not. You know, they were meant to keep us repressed, keep us in prison, keep us thinking that there was no change in us. That's what they wanted society to think. And now look at, you know, you meet people all the time. They're probably like, they would not have any clue where you yeah. came from. You know, you mentioned that you thought that I might've been like yeah. a staffer or somebody yeah, at the Capitol. Bro, I get it all the time. I, I've, I've met correctional officers that I knew inside and they thought I was the correctional yep. officer. They're like, oh, uh, man, did you get transferred to a new, no, that wasn't me. That was somebody, that was officer so-and-so. I was an inmate. And they're like, whoa, yeah, good to see you're out here succeeding. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I yeah, get, me and my buddy walked through Home Depot it's just the way we walk with intention and purpose, yeah, you know, right. and they're like, uh, are you guys office police officers? I know like, military, ex-military. I get or, that. Yeah, for sure. I tell them, uh, they, I used to do heroin and they're like, come on, man, you never did heroin. Right. You're a square. You know, right. they don't believe it. Right. And thank you. Yeah, exactly. That's how, that's, that's how I wish I was thought of the whole time. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So what about a uh, reentry, man? What was the toughest part of reentry? Oh, the toughest part. So, you know, I mentioned before, but life without pro, they don't give you a lot of like, um, resources while you're inside. So right. I didn't really have all the, um, vocations to, to do and lay my hat on. So I did education. I was like you, I, I started my education and like focused on that, try to get a degree and make sure that I had that. So if, and when I ever did get out, like I had something to say, Hey, what'd you do for the last 25 years? Oh, well, I got a degree. You know, what else am I going to do? I can't show any job right. experience because they don't really give us that. Right. And that's, that's a good point that even when you are given LWAP, they shut down the oh, things yeah. that you can participate right. in. Right. The only, I think the only reason why they let me sign up for um, college was because they just needed bodies in the seat. They were getting money for that. Right. They, for every individual who was signed up for college, like they were getting money. And then that's when they started justifying more positions. They started paying oh, yeah. uh, college coordinators to come in and stuff like that. So they were like, you know, that sure. Give them his education. What's he going to do with it? That's no harm. Right. And so, uh, so when I got out, I was like, all right, cool. I got my, got my, my, uh, my AA degree. Let me go put that on my resume. Right. And then I put, you know, uh, culinary, you know, when I worked in the kitchen, I put landscaper for when I was yard crew and I put janitor when I was doing, um, tear tending. You know, so I had all these jobs, but I really laid, laid my hat on my education. And so, uh, but so when I would go and apply for these jobs, they didn't want me. They didn't want to touch me because eventually it came up that I was not an, like a certified landscaper. Yeah, I wasn't an actual janitor. You know, I was like, well, so what did you, you know, what did you do here? I'm like, well, okay, so I was in prison and this is what happened. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you, Mr. DeLuna. Well, we'll give you a call when we're, you know, when we made a decision. Never got a call. This happened about four or five times. And I started realizing like my education at, at that point was, was not good enough for me. I needed like real experience. So that was a struggle because I didn't really have that opportunity to get experience. You mm -hmm. know, I'm starting at 42 years old, basically trying to find a career. And I had no ex prior experience to figure out even what I wanted that career to be. Yeah. And you a know? lot of the jobs that you may want that even, even with your degree say, Oh, this, this job that, you know, you could do well. Right. And little did those, some of those companies know you'd probably outwork everybody there. Right. You know, but, um, but it requires four years of experience. Exactly. Well, how am I ever going to get yeah. any experience if I can't, you can't get, get me hired? Get me yeah. hired. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I even had people tell me, mm -hmm. Oh, well, this is entry level position. Um, you, we need, you need experience. I'm like, you just said it, it's entry level. Like that's how you get your experience. I'm working, I'm trying to apply for warehouse jobs. 
So that was a real struggle. I had to actually um, rely on like friends of family to give me a job and it worked out. And it's like what you were saying, you know, how you outwork them. Every job that I've had, I've excelled at, you know, when I first started the Kings, I started with, um, or at the arena, I started out as a, um, a concession stand, um, you know, cashier. And I quickly moved up to a beer hawker and I was going around selling beer at the stadium, you know, um, here I am, I'm on parole and I can't even drink a beer, but I can go around and sell a beer. Right. right. So I was doing that. And then before you knew it, um, I was, I applied for a supervisor position and, you know, I, I was given the supervisor position and then, right. and now I've even kind of excelled in that position. So, I mean, it just happens where we just, it's our natural ability to, to, to fit in. And cause we always, we had to fit into all many different, I mean, so many different types of of environments that, you know, try to survive that that's what we do. And I, and I was just a, a hard worker and I just kept pushing and pushing, you know, a, a job, I, another job I had as a sales rep, I was, my numbers were increasing every, every place they put me, you want to, you know, they started giving me more responsibility and putting me in larger nar- markets and I, my numbers were still increasing, you know? Um, so I, that's just, you know, it's just natural to just keep striving, but people yeah. weren't giving us that chance at first. There's something to be said about yeah. that because nearly Every formerly incarcerated lifer that I know, those sentenced to life, now I know a few more of those who are out that were sentenced to LWAP, they all work, everybody. We've had to um, prove ourselves. Yeah, you you almost had to be perfect to be free. Exactly. So there's something to be said about bringing that perfect work ethic. I mean, there's times where I say, man, I'm so far behind, I'm going to have to stay up all night and go two days straight. And then, uh, you know, my wife would be on me like, why are you doing that? Other people didn't do it. It's supposed to be eight hour a day. But I gotta, uh, I gotta be, I gotta beat out the next man. I gotta yeah. work harder than everybody if I want to make it in this world. Right. Oh, absolutely. You're, you, you're already given, like, you're already behind the eight ball. Right. Right. I mean, they see you and they see somebody else with maybe even the same or even less experience, but because of your background, automatically they're going to be like this person, let's take him or her and not this person, you know? So yeah, you, you definitely have to strive, um, strive harder to, to, to make it, you know? So that was, that was my, my, my early struggles at first, you know, but once I was given the opportunity, I ran with it. You know, once I was given my first job, it was like, once again, the opportunity. Yeah. So it's that, yeah. So just finding opportunities, especially with my, my background, you know, um, you know, I, again, you know, I, I, I started, so anyway, so to back up a little bit, so I couldn't really get a job right away. So I decided to continue my, my education. I said, well, shoot, I might as well go back to school. I know how to do that. So I'd go back to school we were doing, I was doing a uh, Sac city, you know, trying to get another degree, uh, AA degree to be able to transfer to Sac state. And, um, uh, so that was like keeping me busy. And it was interesting to be on a college campus cause this was pre COVID. So colleges were full, f- full force and everything back then. So, mm-hmm. um, just being in a college campus where, you know, like most of the people weren't even alive when I was, you know, committing my crimes right. and, and I was arrested and doing time. So it's like, here I am with these baby faced people. And I'm like, I feel like a fish out of water, but you know, they, one of the things that was cool about, um, about them all is that they didn't shy away. They were like, you know, if I had to give a presentation and I told them, like, remember one time I said, you know, I'm holding a key and, you know, for the last 25 years of my life, holding a key, you'd be locked up in the hole for, you know, skate paraphernalia or something. I said, this is something new to me. So it was like, you know, Everybody would then ask questions. And then before you know it, like more and more people were telling you like, Hey, my dad's in prison or Hey, my boyfriend's in prison. What's it like? What can I expect? You know, like, you know, is, does he have hope? What does he need to do? You know, he wants to get out early. He wants to be, go to the fire camp. Like, so a lot of people were using that as a way to relate, you know, like, Oh, there's somebody I can relate to it. And I became this person where like, if they couldn't talk to their husband or their dad that day or something, like they would, you know, Use me as a sound. Almost everybody's been impacted in some way. Yeah, absolutely. So it was really, really interesting to see like, you know, when you don't, you don't know how people are going to accept you or treat you, but then as soon as they hear it, like they, it's like, Oh, there's no big deal. You don't need to stress off that more people are forgiving than you think, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And what about those you left behind that? You oh, feel that, is there a lot of people there that you feel they don't need to be there anymore? Do you miss them? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of people that, uh, I feel bad about like, damn, I can't believe I left him. Like we'd, you know, I got a buddy that he calls me like every couple of days and, and, uh, I never once look at the phone and think like, damn, he's calling me again. Or if I hear it, you know, cause there's a few people I, I, I just got one calling. a second ago. Yeah. Right. So you know how it is, right? I mean, there's people that you just, you genuinely, you genuinely make a connection with and you spend your time with them and you give them your trust. Like you, like, you know, you got that brotherly love for that person. And then next thing you know, it's like you leave. 
And, you know, for a long time, I didn't, I wouldn't allow myself to experience that in there because you know what they say is like the one, you, the ones you trust the most are the ones that are going to hurt you the most. Right. In prison, like the person that's closest to you is usually going to be the one they tell you to, Hey, you got to stab them. And so I never wanted to be in a position where I was going to be betrayed by somebody I completely trusted again, you know? So, um, and plus not only that, like at any given moment, one of y'all can leave transfer to someplace mm -hmm. else and you'll never see him again. Like they, you know, even though the prison's a small world, it's, it's, there's enough prisons where you can get lost in the system and you see somebody once and then you don't see him again. And so it was really hard to try to, you know, build those connections. And, um, but, but there's, but you can't help it. You're a human being and, and you're social. You think it just happens. So yeah, I've left a lot of good guys behind and, and, uh, that's why I continue to do what I do because I want them all to have the same chance Absolutely. that I have. So what I do is, you know, I, when they call and they, and they talk to me, they, what's going on. I like, man, look, man, I'm, I'm ready for you, man. I'm, just let me know, man, I'm going to come pick you up. We're going to go and do this. We're going to do That's that. Right. And I don't, and I mean that to every one of them that I tell it to, I'm not going to tell them, I don't sugarcoat nothing. I don't tell nobody lies. I don't blow smoke. If I tell you, I'm going to do something, it might be a while before I do it. Cause I am a procrastinator, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, it's, 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 it's just me. It's just my nature to want to give back and help them out and give them that same hope that, you know, that I had held on to, but not because I believed in it, but just because I needed to hold on to it. So I want them to hold on to that hope. You know, lifers that are going to board, man, there's this chance. There's still a chance. So it gets me emotional to hear you say that, man. Um, and I don't think about all those years that much because I'm focused on the, the present right. and the future. But when you do and you see their faces and they flash and the Sally that I had for eight years and all the meals we, when he left to, when he got to go home, when they changed the three strikes law, well, they didn't really change it, but the Prop 47. and When they tried to success. correct some of those injustices. Yeah. yeah. And he went home, man, I was sad for a week. I cried yeah. that night. Right. You know, that was yeah. my brother. We ate yeah. together every day. You yeah. know, we, we, we watched TV together and movies. That was the only family I had for a long right. time. And then, I don't know if you ever met James Willock. You probably have met James The name Willock. sounds really familiar. Yeah, he's he's at the Kings. He does um, uh, Sacramento Kings Youth League. Um uh, he's a coach for the, for the, for the youth leagues okay. and, and he's doing a lot of work. Probably you might've met him before, but when he got out and all of us, all of our buddies, we only had one of our friends that wasn't on parole right. and he was the one to go pick him up. And then we right. all chipped in and to, yeah. to hit him with a, a backpack and, and clothes right. and, you know, that care package, something right? close to a thousand dollars. Like here, bro, it's just right. something to, you know, to, to get you started and more to come. One, yeah. You don't have to stress for that first couple of days. Exactly. You know? Cause, Cause that $200 ain't cutting it. That $200 that's outdated, man. They used to give $200 out back in the seventies <laughs> yeah. when $200 meant something. Yeah. Now that $200, man, that's like a bus ticket and maybe, you know, a fast food meal or something. Yeah. You ain't going to be able to get a hotel room if you're a motel no. room, if you need one for the night, cause you've already done spent it before you got to that motel room. So that's ridiculous. That, yeah. that needs to change too. I think uh, Sydney, uh, Sem Assemblywoman, uh, Sydney Kamalaga Dove, she's doing something around that right now. Yeah. Can't remember the name of the bill, but. I'm going to make I it saw. retroactive so we can go back and get some too. <laughs> I, I wish. that. I wish. I'll Run take it. it. But um, yeah. on Twitter, speaking of, speaking of, I saw that, her interview on Twitter um, and a friend of mine on there, she sent me the video and I watched it and it was almost a joke to the person who was interviewing her. Like, Oh, there, she was adjusting it to $2,600 right. for today. That's about, right. for about a, what it would take to get by for the first month. Yeah. Right. 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 And the lady thought it was crazy. She thought it was a joke. Right. And, um, it kind of irritated me, but, um, when, when I'm on there, I, I, I learn a lot and I'm interacting with a lot of families who have loved ones like yourself. Mm -hmm. And I asked, and I showed a picture of you and we're at the Capitol and I asked some people if they'd like to ask you questions. So right. I have some people that, you know, we got uh, about 11 minutes here and okay. do some rapid fire, ask questions. And, um, um, uh, at, at Barbara Labonte, she asked, uh, what was your experience with the healthcare medical staff in the prison system? You know, actually I didn't have too many negative experiences with them. Of course, we, we all heard the stories like, you know, don't go to the dentist for a toothache, they'll pull it. <laughs> I mean, we've heard all that. Right. And, and to some extent that is true. Like it's more of a, um, like, we're going to just deal with your pain today. We're not going to try to fix what the problem is that causes right. the pain. But, um, I didn't have too many, I, for the most part, I stayed pretty healthy. So I didn't have to go there for many things. And the few things I did go there for, like they went above and beyond, you know, um, things that they didn't really have to do, but they did it. I think that was also because, you know, was it Plata 
versus Schwarzenegger, where they actually mm-hmm. pretty much was like saying like there had to be a better, uh, yeah. better healthcare better system. Receivership. Yeah, exactly. And they were doing better, <clears throat> but I mean, um, we also know that a lot of those, um, doctors and they used to, I think they used to call them like PAs, physicians, assistants. They mm. weren't actually doctors. Like yeah. we knew that they were there because they probably couldn't be in like the actual, you know, uh, the outside field. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of them kind of used that as a way to continue to be a doctor, but not really. And so, you know, there were times where you'd go there for something and all they'd tell you was like, here's some ibuprofen and drink some more water. I don't know how many times I was told drink some more water. Like that was going to fix everything. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, it's after ridiculous. waiting in the cage for yeah, six hours. Exactly. So, I mean, it was bad. It was bad at times, but it wasn't to the extent that where I felt like my life was like, I was going to get amputated on without And all I went there yeah. for was for an earache or something, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as a lot of people I think put it out there as, but it, at the same time, you know, um, I wasn't paying for it. So, I mean, the, the taxpayers were paying for it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was my medical insurance. It was a taxpayer's dollar. So, I mean, at the same time. And I, it varies from prison to prison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It yeah. does. It does. depends upon a lot of times the staff and the care, you know, the, um, you almost can't, where I was at for 18 years is almost impossible to get an MRI. Yeah. But my mom and my grandma had aneurysms and, yeah. and they actually had to have brain surgery. And I went to one doctor and I'm like, look, here's the issues. Right. Do I need him to call? And, um, he allowed me to get a, a brain MRI. Right. And it was like almost unheard of. Right. So, I mean, it just depends person to person, but and, uh, yeah. To, and to, to that point, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was some sort of, um, racism, you know, oh, prejudice yeah. that also played a role. Cause I know how, if, if a person was a, somebody who's 602 a lot, filed a lot of grievances, they're not going to get the care that they, that they deserve because they just look at them as a crybaby or whatever, and they don't want to help them out. So there's that, there's a lot of factors that go into play. I think right. when, when even with healthcare inside. So, yeah. Christy Hicks, she said, how did you get to the parole board with the sentence and how can we apply this to our loved ones? Great question, actually. So uh, we didn't really touch on that. So in 2012, the U S Supreme court said mandatory life without parole uh, sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. So that coupled with, remember I was telling you, Elizabeth Calvin came and said, Hey, we're going to get you out. She proposed a, um, a Senate bill, um, that actually passed the Senate 2012 and then governor uh, Brown signed it in 2012. So they basically was saying that, you know, if you were a juvenile and you got life without parole, as long as you didn't kill a cop or it wasn't also during the commission of like a molestation or a rape that you would be given a chance to go, uh, in front of a parole board after like so many years, I think it was 20 or 25 and you can, you know, effectively be uh, found suitable. Well, um, as soon as the SB nine, which was the life without parole bill got signed juvenile life without parole bill, maybe specific. Um, when that was signed, uh, I had the human, uh, human rights watch and the USC law school come and say, okay, now we're going to help you get out. And so I had a group of lawyers basically, um, fighting for me. And I ended up, um, appealing my sentence under the fact that the judge basically said it was a mandatory life without, he says, if I can give you the death penalty, I would, but the only thing that I can see suitable for you is life without parole. And so they basically threw out my sentence in 2015 In 2017, I went back for resentencing. And then I was resentenced to 30 to life based on the, uh, Miller versus Alabama and how they were basically saying that, um, you know, the, the child, brain is not developed like an adult. Mm-hmm. So they shouldn't be held accountable for the same, uh, t- terms, you know, the right. same sentences. So in 2017, I was sentenced 30 to sentenced to 30 to life. And then in 2019, I went to par- the parole board for the first time again with my attorneys from the USC law school. I don't, I, the reason I say that is because I, I don't think I would be here today if it was me fighting for myself. Mm -hmm. But, um, thankfully I had a great team of, um, people that were in my court, you know, in my corner, um, went to bat for me, um, went to court for me really essentially, you know, I had my family and everybody there at my resentencing to show the support that I have. And so, um, that was really, um, important. I think when I went in front of the judge and the judge saw that, you know, Hey, yeah, you were a kid. And you sure you've messed up, but we also understand like when you go to prison, things are going to happen. We still think that you have, you know, deserve a second chance. So to answer the second part of that question, like how you can be there for your loved one, I would say is just continue to um, give them the hope that you have, because a lot of times that hope that you have is going to be the hope that they need Mm -hmm. because there's, I don't know how many times I felt hopeless, you know, um, 
but it was my mother, it was my brother, it was my sister that continued to be there and say, look, um, we're going to be here till you get out. So just get out. You know, I, I, I had to do that. I had to do that for them. You know, of course, ultimately it was for me as well, but I had to do that for them. So just continue to be there support them. You know, there's going to be times where you're going to be like, you know, gosh, he's, you know, it's, is it ever going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? And I can tell you right now, um, I'm, I'm still changing, trying to change life without parole. Life without parole is not going to be a sentence that it's going to be around, I think in 10 years. Um, I don't even know about five years. I can promise you though, it's going to change at some point. And, it, and I, I can say it's going to change in the nearer future as opposed to the longer run. So, um, just, you know, relay that hope to them and let them know, like there's people out here that have served life without parole and we're not going to let that go. Yep. Like, uh, we're, we're not done. That's what's up. I'm out here, but I'm not done. I would also say to, to, in terms of reality, the system is what it is right now. So what can I do? I can take every freaking self-help rehabilitative group yeah. possible college, immerse myself, don't get write-ups and put five, 10 years behind that yeah. and submit a commutation to the governor, man. And, and uh, there's there in my day that they, they, nobody got them. And now they're looking at them. They're at least looking at them. Right. I'm, I'm a, a part of a, the, um, a board for the, with the Asian law caucus, uh, the, um, commutations and pardons board. And we meet with the governor staff on that. And, and there's essentially a whole team of 16 people to look at the different factors and they do look at what you're doing. Yeah. And if I was to recommend somebody and they have a write up within, you know, under over under five years, they're not even going to look at it. So they do, they do take a look at it. Yeah. Paige asks, how did you maintain a positive attitude despite being sentenced to LWAP? You know what? I, I didn't want to succumb to the system. The system wants you to be miserable. They want you to be, you know, angry and violent. And I'm like, you know what? If I do that, the system wins. Yeah. And I didn't want the system to win. So that's just the bottom line. The system wasn't going to beat me. I said, no, I, you know, I, yeah, I got life without parole, but until I'm actually on my deathbed, I still have hope that I'm going to get out. So, uh, you know, yeah, I deserve to be there. I did what I did to deserve that sentence. But I also knew that that sentence wasn't going to be the end of the, the sentence. You right. know? Christina Falken, she said, I would like to know what you think are the most important steps to get people reintegrated into life outside of prison. So especially after they've served long sentences. Yeah. The, the important steps, uh, make sure they have, um, employable job skills, um, try to find, um, stable housing and, um, you know, just help, you know, take baby steps. Don't try to do it all at once. Just take it one day at a time. You're going to get, you're going to, there's going to be setbacks. I've, I've heard people talk about the two year mark, you know, after been out for two years, they say that that's when the struggles come. But really just, you know, if you have, if you have a stable job, a stable house, like that's, that's the two important steps. And then after that, man, just take it one day at a time and, you know, enjoy it while you, while, while it's there. And an interesting uh, tweet, tweet came in and we'll close it off with this. He said, we need to pay attention. Mario Chavez at life plus 25. We need to pay attention to the sentences being handed out to youth offenders. It's the crime after the fact. LWAP is not a rehabilitative solution to crime. It's torture. Thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely. To sit there and, and have to be in a concrete box where you have nothing to think about all day, but except that that's going to be your reality, it really takes a toll on you. And without a strong support system, and I don't mean just family, but even hanging out with the right guys inside there, without that, you will mentally break down faster than any cancer, than any disease will break you down. If you let that thought that, that, um, that that's going to be your end, which is what they want you to think, it will kill you. Yeah. And I've seen it. And it's, you know, it, if it doesn't kill you physically, it's going to kill you mentally. You're not going to be the same person. So you got to stop that. Got to stop that right there. You can't have that torturous sentence being, being Close, handed out. Closing words, Tommy, to those still incarcerated, they'll be watching this video. Um, what do you say to those who are, who are getting out in a minute or less about hope? Um, man, just let you know, man, you're not alone. You're not alone in there doing time and you're not going to be alone when you come out here. Just know that we're here for you. Richard, he works for a great organization. I work for a great organization. We're trying to change things. We're trying to change things from the inside out. Right. And now we're trying to change things from the outside in. It's going to happen. Don't give up hope. Just continue to push, man. One day at a time. One day at a time.
Thank you, Tommy, for taking time out of your day to come over here and share. Absolutely. It's good to be free with you, brother. Absolutely. Man. Go, it's a uh, pleasure. We got to hang out sometime soon when yeah. you're got some time apart from the business and the right. two jobs and right. my uh, 60 hour weeks or so. So, yeah. but I'm really proud of you, man. You're, Thank you, man. you're a city set on a hill, brother. You, Thank you. Let no, don't let nobody take your shine. I love what you're doing. And uh, who knows, you know, if they, we get some other laws changed, you might just be that senator one day. Man, you got a mouthpiece. Nice? Yeah. And um, nice. you got a mouthpiece and your life is an example for others. Um, appreciate you. you. Thank appreciate you, you coming appreciate on. You. It's been another episode of the Prison Post. You can find the organization that I work for, Crop Organization, at croporganization.org. Check us out. We got a new press release. Um, we'll be putting applications out for those who would like to join our program, our career campus in Oakland and L.A., We'll be releasing those in the next couple of weeks. There's some interesting things you want to find out. Um, you can find us on all social media channels as well. Crop organization on Twitter, crop org one. And um, <clears throat> also the prison post is connected. There's a link tree there. Check it out. Take care. Thank you for listening to the prison post, a production of the crop organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.